This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Cynthia Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Brown. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Jen Hatmaker. She's a New York Times bestselling author for numerous books, including For the Love and Of Mess and Moxie. She is the host of For the Love podcast and is the co-founder of Legacy Collective. Jen, thank you for joining the conversation. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. So I guess the first thing I need to hear from you is a weather report. Has mm. Austin returned to normal after mm. the states, you know, switch places with the Arctic Circle and mm. one of the most bizarre and unfortunate systems to hit the Lone Star State? I mean, honestly, I mean, Austin has returned to normal as much as Austin's ever been normal. So I don't, it's a trick question. Um, but yeah, what a weird, what a weird experience. Um and I, I think, you know, we're, we're back on the rails in recovery. And then of course, some recovery efforts are harder and longer and more challenging than others. Our farmers took a real hit, um, lost, lost their, their crops and um, our communities that are under-resourced and underserved are still digging out, but, but our lights are on and we're not having to boil our water anymore. So I'm going to say we're on the mend. There's certainly a lot of bizarre videos and pictures that, you know, went viral on the internet and in the, in the week or two around that, that experience for y'all, just uh, some amazing things that obviously people in Texas are not used to experiencing uh, for sure. No. Um, you know, like, like many citizens of the world, uh, you've had a very challenging year. Um, you know, as you look back um, 
I, I don't want to speak of it as if we're through this pandemic, but right. how is your how is your understanding of of God, your relationship with other human beings, and your spiritual journey changed as a result of this this year long experience in the pandemic? Gosh, it's uh, it's so um, weird to think we're at the one year mark. It's just I'm trying to think about how we felt last year, like literally on this date. Uh, and it was so confusing and unsure. And we thought, what are we in here for like a month or two, uh, you know, and a year later, we're still, you know, in this global pandemic. And um, this year has been a real um, gauntlet for us collectively, definitely for me um, and my family more so than we had ever, ever expected. We've had to, I've had to really press hard on my faith and see what's there. Um, having, well, experienced such loss collectively, you know, as a community through the pandemic and then right in the middle of it as out of absolute left field, the most unexpected loss of a 26 year marriage. And so this year has been, um, it's just been full of sorrow and trauma and shock and loss. And so for me, theologically, I've had to step back out of some of the constructs. And of course we did, we haven't had church, you know, some of this, some of the systems and the, 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 the tentacles of faith that we tend to grab onto um, we know we just haven't had, we had, we've been cut off from each other. And, and I kind of had to just go, what's here? Like, what's, what's real? Um, what matters? What's holding? What's not holding? Um, what was sincere to begin with and what wasn't? It's been a real sift um, for me. One that probably is a good one, a good sift. I, I mean, I wouldn't, none of us would ever wish our own suffering um, upon ourselves, but here we are. And so um, I've spent a lot of time kind of with God in a very stripped down um, space that is new to me. Um, and fortunately, I've found that the good parts hold and uh, the, the stuff that matters lasts and some of the other stuff doesn't. You know, as you, your faith journey is is different in the sense of that you live a very public faith journey. Your 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 expressions yeah. of who you are and what you've experienced um, is uh, you know a sojourning experience with so many others. So you know, as you have been transparent, not just this year. I mean, that's been um, your ministry, your expression of leadership, you know, how have people gravitated to that as you've expressed some of these deep pains and sorrows you've experienced this year? Well, the truth is that, um, suffering and loss brings us together. It just does. It's one of those horrible, true things, um, uh, in the same way that it produces so much growth and, good change in our personal lives. It does the same in our relationships. And I don't, I don't know, I don't have another way to be on this earth other than just genuine. I, I don't know how to do it. I, I don't have the skill set for locking a bunch of suffering behind a closed door and carrying on. It's just, I don't, I don't, I don't have that muscle memory. And so there was really no intention to it necessarily as, as much as it was, this is what's happening in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm a public facing person. Um, and so this is, this is what I have to say. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm losing. This is what I'm learning. Um, all of course, very imperfect, very untidy. It was, it was just true. And it was just real. And so what I've noticed, of course, is that that becomes, number one, a lightning rod for people who are hurting in a good way. There's a, there's a soft place to land. There is a, 
there is a person who understands there is somebody who's gone through the same thing or going through the same thing. And that brings us together. It helps us feel so much less alone, especially this year when we already feel so lonely and we're, we're already so disconnected, having, having a, a place to gather, even if, it was, even if it's around pain, is a balm. Um, and then I've noticed too, the longer I go, and as I'm working so hard on my own healing and my own recovery, is that being willing to live authentically in the public eye, even when that is hard or a mess, um, is that it ultimately kind of holds up a lantern for people who are watching. Um, like, let's walk this way. Let's head this way. This is what I'm learning. This is what's true. This is what's still good. This is how God loves us. This is how God is near. Um, these are best practices. And, and so kind of together we get to forge down what felt like a really dark path. Um, but it's less dark when we're in it together. And so that's, that's been my experience this year by and large, really, really beautiful coming together. I think it speaks volume just of the authenticity of who you are. Um, you know, not everybody who says something and puts something out there, uh, do people gravitate to and learn from and chew on and resonate and grow from, um, you know, I'll just use myself as a perfect example. Like 99.9% of the time I can tweet something and I don't, you know, nobody's going to care about it, you know? And so it says something about who you are that people, uh, learn from your shared experience. Uh, and so that's a, it's a beautiful thing, but also recognizing it's a very painful thing. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I can imagine, um, you know, having a year like this, it's easy for people to kind of cherry pick and, and throw bombs and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature, which is just so unfortunate at the times we live in. But um, I'm very well versed in that. I am, <laughs> I have developed an incredibly thick skin for that. Um, which is really saying something as kind of a lifetime people pleaser. But um, I learned early on that, I mean, I know how to do it. I, I know the language. I know what to say and not to say just to stay a darling. I know how to do that. That's my first, that's my native tongue. Um, I know what the rules are. I know what people, I know what to say that's unimpeachable um, to just stay in high favor. But I am unable, I'm unable to hang on to my integrity and live like that. And so for me, there are too many um, true things that are hard to talk about and that challenge and push systems and, and power and patriarchy. And I mean, honestly, I'm 46 years old. I'm halfway done here. You know, I just, this is it. You know what I mean? This is it. This is one life. I've got to spend it well. I have to spend it with intention. Um, I want to be really proud of the way I used my voice, the way I used my influence, the way I um, nurtured my faith, um, the parts of religion that I hung on to because they mattered and the parts that I let go because they were man-made. Um, and so, uh, you know, so far, I don't know how I'm doing, but I do know uh, it's, it stirs some stuff up. And so, yeah, I know when I make a tweet, it's a thing. Um, and so I, I try to do that with a lot of responsibility and care. I'm not, I try not to be careless. Um, I try to be careful and wise and discerning. Um, so when I speak, I speak with intention and I speak with conviction. Let's talk about, uh, some of the convictions you do have that's expressed through some of uh, your work. Um, you're obviously known for your writing and your speaking, but you are also the co-founder of Legacy Collective. Tell us about this organization. Yeah, it's just, this is probably the work of my lifetime. Um, you know, if I'm having to, to rank the things that I've put my hand to, Legacy is a giving community. It's a, it's a donor advice fund. And, um, and we started it a handful of years ago with the thought that what th- this is, I've got influence to spend. It matters. It means something. I can, I can spend it all on myself um, or I can figure out a way to use it for good. And, and so Legacy is this community of really normal people. It's a bunch of normals. It's all ordinary folks. And we've just agreed that we're gonna pool our money every month. So it's normal amounts too. We're not talking, some, some people give $30 a month. You know, it's ordinary amounts of money. We put it in a big pile. And then 
we use our collective money, which is so much more than what any one of us can do together to get all together. We've really got something here. I mean, we, we've got, we got some real gas in the tank. And so legacy is pretty single-mindedly focused on focused on funding. We're a funding org. We don't invent, we don't invent the wheel. We don't do the work. We, we're not the ones out there trying to figure out how to be on the ground, how to put stuff into play. We fund people who are doing it the absolute best already. So we fund sustainable solutions. We're playing a long game here to systemic problems. So we're not an aid organization. Um, we're not a short-term sort of financial band-aid. We are looking for the best people in the world who are meeting a deep-seated systemic need, hopefully with the end goal of eventually working themselves out of a job. Almost exactly 50% of our grants are international and 50% are domestic. And so um, we, we're, we're trying to use our, our giving um, cachet for the whole world. <laughs> if that sounds audacious, it is. So how can people get involved? I mean, how can people mm -hmm. contribute to share as part of this oh, yeah. collective? How can yep. people who are think their work is worth your time and effort? Uh, where, yeah. where do they need to go to find out more? Legacycollective.org. And we have an incredible giving community there. It's just a humble group. Um, just humble, consistent, faithful givers who are just committed, committed to the work. And it's not sexy because we're not out there doing it ourselves. It's not, it doesn't come with a lot of photo ops right? It's not, um, you know, the kind of work that, that is going to be headliner. It's, but the truth is those folks are already out there. They're in their communities. They're, they're in their, they're in their people groups. They are deeply um, in possession of the knowledge of what's going on and what is necessary and what is needed. They've got their systems in place. They have their people mobilized. So there is a place in the world for a group of people who say, we'll fund it. That's what we'll do. We'll fund your good work. Our vetting system is incredibly tight. Um, and so it's a very trustworthy organization that if you're interested in making sure that whatever even very modest amount of your dollars does the absolute most good, add it to our pile. Let's keep going. Like um, we've, we're, we're coming up on, you know, $4 million of grants. And these are, these are game changing grants for so many organizations that we fund. So it's really exciting work. One small counterpoint I would make is I think about 99.9% .9 of those that go into social work go into it thinking it's sexy work. So oh, I'm not gosh. sure. <laughs> oh, it's not sexy, is it? Um, um, turns out systemic change is not sexy at all. It's, it's, a, it's long, hard work in the same direction. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. BSK's Flourish Center has an exciting opportunity for youth leaders. Is your youth program at your church led by a lay leader who would love some youth ministry education but isn't able to complete a full master's degree? Introduction to Youth Ministry and Essential Topics in Youth Ministry are two workshops that are currently being offered online for youth leaders taught by experienced CBF youth ministers. Essential Topics in Youth Ministry includes six sessions and is only $50. The course begins on April 13th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. Videos are already pre-recorded for all six sessions for Introduction to Youth Ministry and are available now for just $25. Visit flourish.bsk.edu to register today. So you have a new book out, uh, Simple and Free. You invite readers into your own journey of our indulgence and its effects on our spiritual journey, inviting readers into a life of simplicity and generosity. You wrote, for years, I didn't realize we were rich because so many others had more. We were surrounded by extreme affluence, which tricks you into thinking you're in the middle of the pack. Walk us through the experience mm -hmm. of coming to terms with this new reality within your own spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. um, I originally wrote Simple and Free under a different title called Seven. Um, and Simple and Free is the revised, completely updated version of the experiment. It was a social experiment because a handful of years ago, when I originally went through it, I had this deep sense that everything in my life was too much, too, just too much of everything. We had too much stuff. We were spending too much. We were wasting too much. We were buying too much, um, too much stress, 
too much media and technology, I just, but I just could not figure out how to get out of it. I, I couldn't envision a new system. I couldn't quite see, I didn't know enough. I wasn't clear on, um, I wasn't clear on systems. I wasn't clear on um, labor. I, I, I just, it, it all felt muddy. And so, because I don't have, um, I don't know, I don't have a, 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 a gentle gear. I just don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not subtle. So I was like, well, that's it. Let's just absolutely do the craziest thing we can think of. And so um, I came up with this project called Seven, now called Simple and Free. And it was, we took seven areas of excess that for, for me in my life, in my home and my family felt like too much. But I honestly think this is really true for the average American. I, this, is, this is sort of across the board. So it was food, clothes, possessions, media and technology, spending, waste and stress. And every single one of those categories, we were drowning in excess, just too much of everything. And so um, we spent one month on each idea and we boiled our options down to just seven things that month. So like, for example, we ate the same seven foods for a month. Um, I wore the same seven pieces of clothes for a month. Um, we gave away seven things a day that we owned for a month, only spent money in seven places for a month, etc. And so it was kind of in the spirit of a fast, you know, never really meant to be a, a permanent um, change, but a massive restraint, really just to see what God would do. Like what, what would the Holy Spirit do with, with this kind of wiggle room? Um, what would he do with this sort of space? So the, the, the fast, if you will, was accompanied by a lot of learning. So every single month I'm, I am learning about the food supply. Um, I am learning about our carbon footprint. I am learning about the effects of media and technology on our brains. I am um, learning about um, climate change. And so like any fast does, it really does create room for God to move in you. And so even though the, the tenets of the social experiment were not permanent, a, a lot of the results became permanent. Um, it changed, well, it changed my life. Um, and it changed my reader's life. When it came out the first time as seven, I, it never even occurred to me, I promise you not one time that anybody would want to do that experiment themselves never even dawned on me. And when my readers started doing it in, in various ways, in their own way, it's not a template, by the way, it's not like a rule. It, there's a million ways, front doors to this sort of idea, but um, I just couldn't believe it. I still can't believe it. The stuff that people, the way people responded. I mean, they sold their houses, they downsized, they started nonprofits, they started churches. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I, of all the things I've ever written, I have never, ever seen such a strong and intense and over-the-top response to, to any book I've ever done. Just a small note, though, on that whole seven thing, I would highly, highly recommend not just minimizing down to seven pairs of underwear. Um, <laughs> I will say all underclothes got a free pass. They did yes. not have to count. Those multiple. did not have to count. Yes. Multiple. yes. Um, so, you know, I've preached multiple series throughout my years in ministry yeah. about our relationship with money. Um, let's just say the American consumer culture is not exactly compatible with Jesus teaching all money. And no, it's not. Um, you wrote, look at our houses, cars, closets, our luxuries. If we are not rich, then uh, no one is. If we aren't swept into entitlement, indulgences, and extravagance, then Jesus is a fool, and let's get back to living. Why do you think, theologically speaking, that we American Christians tend to ignore Jesus' teachings on money and possessions? Oh, it's too hard. It's just too hard. Um, we don't want the implications of it. Um, we like our stuff. Of course, of course we do. And um, it's nice to be at the top of the food chain. Right. And, um, but it just, it ends up that we don't end up owning our own stuff. It just ends up owning us. And it, this is a real, real struggle for the average believer, the average Christ follower um, to even imagine. I mean, cause we really are, it's not just that we have so many advantages. We live in a place that has so many advantages. This is, you know, through no credit or fault of our own. This is where we were born. This is our environment. This is what we have. And so um, I think we lack the imagination 
to envision what kind of life this might look like that Jesus was always talking about. Um, what a life of pretty radical generosity might look like, what, what it would mean to not feel real trapped in our stuff and things and possessions. It's just, it's such a rare thing to behold. We see so few people actually live like that, live lightly on the earth. Um, that it feels like it would be nothing but loss upon loss. But it's interesting to discover that when we say on purpose, we're going to take a handful of these categories and we're going to just give less a try. We're going to give it a test run. We're going to see what it means to choose less, um, to choose restraint, to, to, to just lower um, the indulgence level here. What actually happens is that these other categories that really mean something to us, the ones that actually matter, they get to be more. And it's one of those things, it's kind of a, a bit of a leap of faith to see if Jesus is real or if he's just full of crap. You know, like, is this, is he just trying to ruin our lives? You know, I grew up in a, I grew up at Southern Baptist. And so um, I, my understanding of God for so long was like, he is such a bummer. Like, and I, the only way that God's ever going to be happy with me is when I'm miserable. That to me was that, that was the broker, the deal we had to broker, um, that obedience looked like misery. Um, so I figured, well, I'll really never truly be in God's actual favor until I'm a missionary in some, you know, remote village. That's it. I guess that's the pinnacle of what faithfulness looks like because God really hates us to have joy. And he really hates us to have happiness. And that was, I, I really thought that was how God was. And um, now that I know that he's not, now that I know that he really is a God of abundance and of love and of joy and connection, like all the good things, really like all the good parts of the story. Um, I know that if he's asking us to consider what it looks like to live a life of generosity that isn't absolutely consumed with consumption, that it is not to make us unhappy. It's to bring us some level of joy that we really can't even fathom. And so um, I think I trust God now more that when he asks us to do something, there's life on the other side of it. Um, it's not just to ruin our fun um, and to ruin our, our happiness. And so I have a little bit more faith in God's um, requests now, the older I've gotten. You know, we, we chalk Jesus words up to a particular situation, like, like the rich young man who, who clearly needed to get rid of everything so that he could properly follow Jesus. Um, you know, but a fun fact about money in the Bible, the Bible addresses money over 2,172 times. Jesus yeah. spoke about money, 16 out of his 38 parables, one yeah. out of seven verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about money. So that leaves us 25% of the time Jesus is talking. It's about money. Yeah. You know, so what have you learned is at the heart of Jesus teaching on these things? You know, he's not a fool and he's not a dummy. And so if, if we, if we believe that, if we believe that he is good and smart and he knows us better than we know ourselves, if we believe that he understands humanity and the human psyche and our impulses, um, if we believe that he has a deep understanding of the things that hold power over us to our own detriment, to the harm of our communities, to the harm of our neighbors, the world, and a sense of flourishing, then we have to admit he's really onto something here that money and possessions are very tightly intertwined. They're somehow wrapped up in power, um, in power differentials, in injustice, um, uh, in, a, in a world where certain people are allowed to stay on top at the expense of everybody else. Um, he knows something here. He's not just messing around. He's not, he's not careless with his words. And so I, I know that Jesus understands the power um, that money and possessions can have over us. It's not, this is not a mystery. I mean, we only need to look at the inequities in our very neighborhoods, in our cities, in our world to see the truth of it. Um, and so it comes down to, do we believe him? 
<laughs> do we believe him here? Um, do we believe there's life on the other side of this instruction? And are we willing, are we willing to see? And, and, and I think that's what simple and free was. It was a little bit of a test. Like, I don't know about, you know, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know about this. Um, let's just see. Let's just see what happens. Let's see if this is real. Let's see if there's um, abundant life in a different way than I'd imagined. And it turns out it's true. Let's talk about overindulgence and food. Um, I think our, our culture, is, it's, it's easy to justify not with quantity, but by quality. You know, we use terms like organic, free range, pasture raised and, and all natural, you know, without realizing it, these terms become synonymous with our lifestyle and privilege, you know, and, and in what ways does healthy, the healthy food kick affect our relationship with, with greed and materialism? Yeah, there's a lot, um, there's a lot to learn and discover inside our food systems. Um, and they point to a lot of other systems. Um, they're indicative of socioeconomic level. They're indicative of geography. Um, they are indicative of um, sort of cash flow. And so, yeah, there's a lot here. I learned a lot about this when we went through the food month. And, you know, when you, when you look around and realize that, I mean, let's just look at the United States even. We don't even have to turn an eye to the whole world because that's a, even a bigger conversation. But even here in the United States, when our, our percentage of food insecurity is so high, I mean, even in, you know, arguably one of the most developed countries in the world, when we still have endless food deserts, um, of course, all generally located in our communities of color. It's always disproportionate. It always arcs with power. It always arcs with privilege. Um, we, we really have a long ways to go here. And so uh, this is such a, such a big conversation. The industrialized food system is such a billion dollar beast. Um, and it's going to take a lot of reimagining. Um, and it's not only what's available to the average consumer, what's available to the average human being in terms of just health and nourishment, but it's also what it means for our earth. Um, obviously, cattle farming is one of the absolute leading contributors to climate change. This is a big deal. Um, and it's the industrialized countries like the United States who are the biggest offenders here. And um, I mean, we're going to have to reimagine how we eat and what we eat. Um, time is ticking. This is on our watch. We are absolutely running out of time here. And so um, this conversation is broad and deep and wide, and it really merits our attention. And I, I, this sort of fatalistic thinking of somebody else is just going to have to care about this. You know, somebody else is going to have to figure this out. Somebody else is going to have to make the necessary changes um, isn't an appropriate response. This is gonna take all of us um, deciding that we are going to have to make some sweeping changes in the way that we eat if we wanna preserve this planet for our kids and definitely for their kids um, and everybody's kids, honestly. This is a huge conversation. You know, it, it's one thing to, to talk about um, kind of the issues of consumerism, you know, in our world. It's another thing to connect it to our spiritual journey, which you've, you've done in this book. Uh, a recent study found that 54% of Americans feel overwhelmed by clutter and 78% have no idea what to do with it. Totally. Um, you wrote, let's challenge the, the laissez-faire response that dismisses our consumerism with a casual shrug but be prepared for the upstream struggle. The keepers of the market want us to spend. Walk us through um, kind of the, the real carnal, difficult nature um, of this, you know, within your own spiritual journey as, as we look at things like consumerism and overindulgence. Well, I mean, look, this is not neutral. It's not as if we have accidentally and casually stumbled into this level of consumerism um, where, 80% or where 20% of the world is gobbling up 80% of the goodies. This is not accidental. This is intentional. We are, um, we have, we are the natural and predictable outcome 
of a market that wants us to spend. So um, it is absolutely designed to get us to open our wallets really at every turn for every possible thing, for needs, both real and invented. Um, and all with a sense of entitlement. I need this. I deserve this. This isn't too much. Um, this is, and yet, our, as you just mentioned from the quote, from the stats that you said, it, that's, it's not our lived experience. Our lived experience is that we're overwhelmed. Our lived experience is that um, we feel, we feel cluttered. We feel indulgent. Um, we feel a little bit out of control and our stuff is not actually making us happier. That's the, that's the hell of it. It's not actually doing what it promised to do. Um, it, it has a, a law of diminishing returns. Um, as it turns out, it's the, it's the Jesus stuff that really is the, it's the joy of life. It's our relationships. It's our people. It's our communities. Um, it's our faith. It is generosity, it's compassion. That's the stuff that sticks. Um, that is real, that stuff has a high ROI. Our stuff has a much smaller ROI than it promises. It just, it over promises and it under delivers. And so if we are able as a people of faith to hook this in to our beliefs, um, to our convictions, if we are able to, and again, you use, I'm, I like the quote that you pulled from the book. It's, it's an upstream battle because this is not the way the market is designed. So we can be prepared for a little pushback on it. But if we can do the hard work of pulling into alignment here, um, if we are able to say, I'm going to consider this instruction from Jesus to the same degree that I consider a lot of the other stuff, I'm going to give it the same weight um, or even more so since Jesus seemed to be so obsessed with it. Um, as it deserves, as some of the other theologies that I spend a lot of time and energy on, some of the other doctrines that always are front and center, um, and this one is magically and mysteriously in the background. Um, I believe that this will make us a more beautiful people. I, I believe 100% it will make a more beautiful earth. Um, if God can convince his people to live like he told us to, if he can talk us into it, into giving his ideas a try. It has such a societal impact. Um, the, 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 the ripple effects of that kind of generosity, of that kind of simplicity. I mean, it would, it, would, it would go around the whole entire world. And so, man, I'd love it if we'd give it a try. I'd love to see what would happen um, if we took him at his word and allowed our faith to be in alignment here on this idea and believe that it's not going to ruin everything for us, but rather it's going to make all things new. So this book is challenging because you're asking people to reconsider their self-perception. Yeah. And when you talk about entitlement, man, people really don't want to hear that. Um, you know, a, a lot of the seven areas of excess, uh, most would acknowledge as a prevailing struggle within white uh, American Christianity. However, yeah. the excess of stress is maybe a surprise for some. And I love this, this quote from the book. Mm -hmm. Clearly, I believe my labors are more encompassing than that of the ancients. What with their little cultivating the land and harvesting their food and making supplies and raising gobs of children. Oh, you Israelites, don't you even know busy? I have 31 unanswered emails from yesterday. Uh, take us a little deeper here. Yeah, this was um, the outlier of the seven areas to address the others were very tactile you know they were they were it was stuff it was spending it was dollar bills um it was possessions you know it was very very like the the stuff of life stress was a little bit more nebulous um a little bit more in the atmosphere less defined but i couldn't get away from the concept because i mean if we're going to have a conversation around what in our lives is too much we have to, we have to include stress we have to include um, the pace that we are keeping collectively as a, as a people and what it is causing in our lives and our families and our relationships and our kids. Um, and so I did not know how I was going to structure that one until I was already halfway through the whole experiment. So I was maybe on month four, still not sure how I was going to apply the number seven to stress. I just knew that I needed to. And that is when my friend Leslie put a book in my hand um, called Seven Sacred Pauses. 
and kind of came out of the monastic community, um, which is, I mean, like I told you, I grew up Southern Baptist. That was just woo woo crazy. Right. Um, I didn't have any handle on liturgy, um, on sort of rhythmic practices that was completely foreign to me. And so I read this book out of, out of the monastic, um, space about really just following through the seven, these are ancient prayer rhythms, um, that kind of arc with the, a portion of the day, you know, at dawn, at midday, at noon, early afternoon, end of the work day, um, bedtime and then midnight, um, and these very um, kind of prepared prayers that you get to go through. And they're short. It's, these are very short pauses. Um, that's, you know, seven sacred pauses. It really is. It's only a couple of minutes at each one. And that you just stop in the, whatever you're doing at those appointed times. And each prayer has a direction. It has a focus. It has something to do with that time of day and it's sort of a mirror to our spirit. I mean, what a deal. And we also practiced the Sabbath that month. And so that was also brand new to me. I had, that was new at the time. Now we do that regularly, but at the time it was a brand new practice. And I love that. That was my favorite month. That was, I could not, I cannot even begin to tell you how many times I was about to spiral out on any given day. I was in a bad headspace. I was tanking and my alarm would go off. I had to set phone alarms for those pauses because I could never remember them. Never. I got it, the whole first week. I forgot them all the time. And I was literally doing this on purpose. And so I set phone alarms and that really finally dialed me into the practice. And that alarm would go off and I would pull up the prayer that I was going to pray. It was very beautiful. It was more like a reading. Um, and it would just choop switch my trajectory just like that. I mean, just like that, there's really something powerful inside this idea of, of laying down our stress of picking up prayer and, and introspection and kind of this divine connection and, and pausing and resting. I mean, the concept of rest, God, we're terrible at this. Um, so by far, I'm glad that was the last month. Um, it was such a beautiful, restorative way to end the whole project. Yeah, after all this reflection of, of many years of, of pursuing simplicity, you've said that after curbing your appetites for these things for so long that you've discovered your appetites have changed. Theologically, what was the most challenging aspect of all this? Oh man, first of all, that is a very true statement. Um, for a people who have rarely ever said no, what happens is you say no long enough, you learn that you can do it. And not only do you learn that you can do it, you discover all this life abundant that was waiting for that moment, waiting for that room in that space. It, it really will fundamentally change you to practice um, restraint and responsible consumerism and generosity for an extended period of time. It will, it will do something different. It will rewire your brain. It will reorient your priorities and your thoughts. It's, it's no joke. I mean, it's a no joke. God is not messing around. He really can still change us from the inside out. And, and I think for me, that was the, that was the theological takeaway, which was I can trust God. Having grown up, as I mentioned, feeling so afraid of God, primarily that was, that was the mechanism that kept me pretty faithful was wanting to stay on God's good side. Um, afraid of whatever the scary God that I was taught about. Um, I, this was a beautiful way to experience God over an extended period of time, which is he's for us. Like he really is. He's for us and he's for our families and he's for our hearts and souls and minds and he's for our neighbors. And um, he doesn't ask us to do things that are frivolous. He doesn't ask us to do things that have no meaning, that have no impact, um, that are really just to, they're punitive. I, he's just not a punitive God. And so I got to the end of this and realized I can trust God. And um, he if he asks something of me, it is, it is for my, it is really is truly 
like for my good, for the good of my people, <clears throat> for the good of my community and my church. And so what a wonderful thing to discover, especially if you have really whack ideas about God. Um, if he was presented to you as arbitrary or as brutal, um, mean, distant, angry, you know, we've packaged God like that for centuries. Um, this was a wonderful way to come into his presence. Um, albeit a strange way. Um, of course, it's just the only, it's just my history. It's, it tracks. Um, but, and discover he is who he says he is. Um, and he is as good as he says he's good. Which of these seven, um, have you had the most pushback from your readers and critics? Hmm. Uh-huh. The, the not, to say, not to say that I really want to give a platform to your critics, so maybe let's, let's focus that, in oh, on look, your readers. Look, if you're on Twitter, you can see it. Don't worry about it. It's, it's living loud and proud. They're out there. Um, probably, I don't know if this is pushback as much as it is just a collective struggle. And this is absolutely true for me too. The hardest month, and it's only gotten harder since the original project. You know, when I revisited this and updated and revised it all, I was like, dang it, when I got to this chapter this month, because not only am I no better off than I was originally, I'm worse. And um, my readers had the same experience, which is media and technology. Boy, what a beast. Um, and when I originally wrote it 10 years ago, I mean, can you even think about how much media and technology has changed in a decade? We didn't even have Instagram back then. We didn't have Uber. Uh, it was just, <coughs> it was a fraction of what it is now. And <coughs> excuse me. And my kids are older too. Um, so, you know, I've got young adults and teenagers now. And so for them, media and technology is a completely different animal than it was 10 years ago. And so um, this is the hardest one. When it, during the experiment, we eliminated seven different forms of media and technology, which essentially meant we had none. We didn't have, we put our phones down. We had no apps. We didn't do internet um, we didn't have TV. We weren't listening to our radios. We, I mean, we just shut it down. We went radio silent. Um, and it, I'll tell you what, that will, that will really show you something, you know, take away what you use all the time and its absence will be keenly felt, absolutely keenly felt. So that to me is the hardest, the hardest one to manage still. Um, in a way that is reasonable. I'm not one of these like all or nothing people. I don't think, I, I don't say uh, we shouldn't have any of it because, you know, the internet, social media has been a, a source of great good, incredible community. Um, it's, it has been used for amazing purposes and, and it's here to stay. So it's silly to pine away for the 1970s. Um, but managing it in a way that we don't also sacrifice face-to-face -face relationships, time off of our screens, time out. I mean, there's just, the list goes on and on and on is it's going to be an increasing struggle and we got to figure it out because we're also learning more and more and more what its effect is on our brains, on our bodies and on our relationships. And we are going to have to figure out how to manage this with more integrity than we are. All right. Last question. Okay. Um, let's talk about the council. Um, okay, you know, yeah. one of the things you recognize is that this is not a journey uh, into simplicity by by ourselves. So, you know, tell us about this experience, six friends, six personalities, six chances uh, to keep things from from derailing. Yeah, I can't. I'm happy that you asked that last because I cannot stress enough that this is a book to read with your peeps. This is a book to read with your friends, with your small group, with your church, with um, your extended family. This is best experienced together in some sort of community. Um, I, I actually can't imagine it without. And so I um, conned my six of my best friends into um, being my advisory council. And then they all did some version of each month. We all did it differently. Cause like I said earlier, it's not a template. There's in fact, for Simple Free, we also put together a study guide and a free guided journal. And inside of those, there's a ton of ways to do this differently. Um, sort of different, different logistics, same outcome. But anyway, so my friends did some version of whatever that month was. And, 
And then together we like, we pooled our generosity. We did cool projects together. We put our stuff together for giveaway for the giveaway month. And um, we served together. It was just so fun. Um, and so I deferred to them because there were all these like weird moments where I'm like, how do I follow my rules when I'm traveling? How do I follow my rules when somebody's making dinner for me? And so I gave them, uh, they were like the Supreme court. I was like, you guys get to make the rules. And if I have a, a conundrum, I'll put it in front of you and I'll do whatever you say. I'll do whatever you decide um, to kind of keep me on the, on the wagon, if you will. Um, and so half of them were very permissive and half were just absolutely brutal. Uh, and so somehow we found a happy medium, but those girls, bless them. Um, we still talk about this experiment because it did such a wonder in all of our lives. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't pass on a word of greeting for my wife. Uh, ah, she, yes. she doesn't usually pay attention to who I'm interviewing, but, sure. but, but fireworks started going <laughs> off in her head. I could, I could tell when I said, Hey, I get to sit down with Jen Hatmaker. Oh, uh, love it. Uh, what's her name? Jennifer. Jennifer, of course. That's all of our names. Um, yeah. Give her a, just all my love. Sincerely. I will. Well, to stay connected with Jen, check out jenhatmaker.com. Follow her on all major social media platforms and go out, purchase simple and free wherever books are sold. Jen, thank you for being a fabulously transparent person who allows your life and struggles and spiritual journey to spark for countless people um, inspiration to try to navigate the challenging waters of life. Mm, what a nice thing to say. Thank you. And thanks for having me on today. It was great to talk to you. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAfee School of Theology's Doctorate and Ministry Program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.